Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. fellow Fordians, and welcome to another episode of Investigating the Impossible with Tobias and Emily. I'm Emily. And I'm Tobias. And today we have author and paranormal researcher Josh Kutchin. Welcome to the show, Josh. Hi, y'all. It's so good to uh, be here and so good to talk to y'all. It's been, it's been a while. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Oh, yeah, no, this is, uh, this is great because I've been wanting to do this for a while, but, uh, you know, everybody has been so busy and it's... It's difficult to get uh, schedules to align, so yeah, uh, it's it's just it's fantastic that we were able to, to put this together and, and be able to to uh, to speak and everything. Now, for everybody out there listening, if you're not familiar with uh, with Josh's work here, uh, you really ought to be because uh, he's done some absolutely fantastic uh, research in terms of Fortiana, which of course is something uh, in which we are all interested in. So. Uh, he's written several books uh, from The Trojan Feast to The Brimstone Deceit to one of my personal favorite, Thieves in the Night, to most recently with our friend uh, Timothy Renner, uh, a pair of books on Bigfoot and High Strangeness uh, titled Where the Footprints End. And so we'll get into all of that stuff in, uh, in just a minute. But um, before we do, now... Um, for anybody who's not familiar with you, do you mind just sort of starting out with uh, what got you interested in, in these kinds of subjects? Like, why weird stuff? You know, I, I think, you know, I always had interest in this sort of thing. I think that the real start of it was the fact that I was into Monster Kids. I was into Monster Kids. I was into Monster Movies. <laughs> I was a Monster Kid. Um you know, the, the old Ray Harryhausen stuff, like the first movie that I ever watched, I think, was the 1933 King Kong. So, you know, I was really into anything with monsters and, and uh, creatures and stuff like that. So that naturally evolved into uh, interest in things like, you know, just 14 things and also, uh, you know, Bigfoot especially. Um, that was sort of my, my go-to secret vice, so to speak. Um, but I did have a couple of... Uh, a couple of books here and there, uh, some books by Patrick Weege and Lauren Coleman. And, uh, I also had, uh, Jerome Clark's, uh, the unexplained, which is a great, just a absolutely wonderful compendium of, of, of Fortiana, um, that I, I, I my, it's still at my folks place today. It's, it's the cover fell off. So it's been like <laughs> taped together with packing <laughs> tape since then. Uh, but the, the cop, my copy still exists. Um, and that really, I think is the first book that got me into this. And, uh, it's always really, you know, a passive hobby because, um, you know, I, I don't think a lot of people set out to get involved like you and I are in these subjects because it's such a stigma, you know? Oh, sure. Um, it, it, it's almost like it finds you more than you finding it. And uh, I had a, uh, a gift from my sister-in-law, an Amazon, uh, a Amazon gift card that I use on some books that I got. J. Robert Alley's Raincoat Sasquatch, since, you know, I was didn't really have a lot of UFO books. It was mostly Bigfoot books. Even then, it was like, you know, maybe five or six. But I'd heard that this was a good Bigfoot book. So I um, I picked up this Bigfoot book, and about the same time, I was also uh, on a commute an hour to work. 
So I was starting to listen to, you know, getting into the paranormal podcast scene and, and passing the time that way. Again, just a, a vestigial interest, really. And uh, I've got J. Robert Alley's Ringo Sasquatch. And at one point in the book, it says that the uh, if you give food to the bookwuss, which, if memory serves, is the uh, quackutal, um Sasquatch analog, or sometimes it's regarded as a Sasquatch analog. If you take food from the bookwist that they offer you, you're destined to become stuck with the bookwist forever and even become a bookwist yourself. And for some reason, I always had in the back of my head this bit of, you know, Western European fairy lore, that food taboo of, of if you, you know, take food um, from the fairies in fairyland, you're, you're stuck there forever. And I said, that's a really interesting comparison. Somebody should write a book about that. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and, I, and I waited a couple of months and Nick Redfern didn't do anything. So I was like, oh, I guess it me. Um, so, you know, I was working at the University of Georgia and uh, the summers were pretty slow. So basically over the course of the summer, I sort of, you know, I would do the things that would need to be done at work. But in between, I would start, you know, pecking away at this book. And that's where Trojan Feast came from. And um, I'm still really humbled today that uh, it, that book was received as well as it was. You know, I mentioned uh, having some books by Patrick Weege, um uh, growing up. And uh, Patrick became my publisher of my first three books, um, Anomalous Books. And... Uh, they seemed to uh, touch a nerve, and so I just was like, "Hey, this is this is fun, and um, it's something that I, you know, I what's that old saying? I hate writing, but I love having written, you know." Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, that's uh, that's sort of the the start of all this. Oh wow! I mean, you know, in in, in some of those books too, like you mentioned that uh, that Jerome Clark uh, unexplained, like. I have, well, I, I'm not sure which edition it is, but it was one of my earliest buys. And it's, uh, it, you know, it's for anybody who, who hasn't seen it, it's like this dictionary size, like purple book. And it's, it's gotta be like 300 pages minimum, but you know, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a large volume. So that's a lot, you know, maybe even more than that. I'd, I'd have to go check, but, um, yeah, it's a, it's a definite classic. Yeah, I think mine's the even older version. It's the red and black one with the person's like a, a wood, wood etching of someone's like eye or, or something on it. Oh wow! Um, but it, it really is one of those books that like it, that's that's a fourteen book. I mean, it's not a it's not a UFO book. It's not a Bigfoot book. It's right. got some of that stuff in there. But like that's that's probably where I got really interested in the more fourteen side of things because you know I was I was just as fascinated by you know falls from the sky and rat kings as I was uh, <laughs> as I was you know the Bigfoot stuff. Oh sure, and you know the 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 more you uh, I think sort of spend time in this sphere too, you know the the more interesting some of that stuff becomes because like you've already noted, uh, you know there's there's so many commonalities. So um, now you already mentioned like you had uh, you'd noted like this sort of uh, uh, analog in in fairy lore with this this uh, Bigfoot lore. And so, like that's that's obviously you know fascinating to, to me personally. But you know, what was sort of your introduction to um, fairies and stuff? And then, you know, just like an immediate follow up to that, like people still claim to interact like with with those beings. So I'm interested to know too, um, sort of where you fall. Uh, in terms of, and it's, you know, it's okay if you don't have a firm belief. I mean, I, my, my beliefs vary day to day, 
but uh, sort of like where you fall uh, in terms of interpreting, you know, uh, modern day fairy sightings, ver- you know, or interactions or experiences, whatever, versus um, this this fairy lore, uh, that, you know, that could be centuries old that that we love to compare to to modern, you know, Fortean narratives. You know, Tobias, that's a really interesting question because I I can't tell you where the heck I. I got this real love of fairy folklore. I don't know where it came from. All I remember is that one of the first things I, rem- I did remember was that that rule about not eating or drinking food in fairyland. And, you know, whenever my wife would give me a hard time about listening to these podcasts, I'd say, but I say, I know what to do in fairyland. Don't eat <laughs> or drink anything. It's useful. And, yeah. And I just, I don't know. I don't know where that I don't know where I picked that up. I'm sure it was on one of those those old podcasts or maybe it was in that Jordan Clark book, but it never really was a um never really was something that interested me too much until I sort of got along that Jacques Vallée line of thinking because I was kind of I was so I here's something I don't talk about a lot. I nursed for the longest time this really profound fear of alien abduction. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, there are some from the Buck Hopkins school of thought that would say that means that I'm an abductee, right? But I don't, I don't really think that is. I think that's a f- terrifying scenario regardless of who you are and right. what happened to you. But I was terrified of it. And um, I think that once I started seeing those sort of Magonian parallels and these the, the insinuation that uh, the alien contact experience has something to do with consciousness, which I adamantly think it does, um, that sort of gave me a little bit of a foot in the door of um, of personal sovereignty in the experience, right? So if it ever does happen to me, there is a tiny sliver that I have um, my own identity, my own beliefs that can maybe help me out of that jam of a situation. Um, so yeah, I was always sort of dismissive of UFO stuff, and then I heard the fairy fairy folklore parallels. I heard the altered states stuff the dmt stuff which was like oh this is a different way of looking at it because the extraterrestrial hypothesis didn't make sense to me for a number of reasons that you know have have aged pretty well because they're the same reasons that i'm antagonistic towards it today (laughs) um you know as far as what theories are in the way that i think of them um it really is an ever-evolving path um you know hopefully if you ask me this question in a year um it will have changed and gotten a little bit more nuanced but uh i am currently in a place where i do think that uh i don't think it's fairies i don't think it's aliens but i think they're two bodies of um folklore yes alien abductions as folklore Mm -hmm. that are describing the same thing in the context of their times and uh i think that really if you sort of broaden out what that means you kind of end up with a pan paranormal vision of what all this stuff is, which is really, um, this is the subject of the, of the next book that I'm writing on, uh, what Terrence McKenna called an ecology of souls when he was talking about the DMT realm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people will take that and run with it and say, well, you know, Josh is a Christian, so it must mean some sort of Judeo Christian, uh, you know, uh, angels, demons, <laughs> sort of things. And, and that's not really what I'm talking about at all. Um, I, I really don't. You know, even though I am a practicing Christian, I don't buy into that reductive uh, binary um, model. I think that you, I think that, you know, if you look at something like an ecology, you're looking at a bunch of different things that fill a bunch fill a bunch of different niches, mm-hmm. 
and uh, you know things that aren't necessarily good nor evil. They're sort of free agents or things that are just indifferent to you. It's like uh, someone once said, um, you know, a shark isn't evil, but a shark's gonna shark. You know, a shark's gonna eat you if it if it hasn't if, if it's if it's inclined to, or at least you know be curious and perhaps damage you just by being curious. Um, so that's sort of where I am now, and I think if you look at it that way that's a sort of an umbrella term for me that does encompass fairies. It does encompass, um, a lot of the alien contact experience. It does encounter some of the Bigfoot stuff. Um, but also I think what it hints at is the fact that we are intimately connected to this. And, and I suspect that, um, that in a truly like reincarnative way, um, everything that exists is laundered through this ecology of souls, including our own human souls when we die. Um, it's really interesting. If you, you can actually find a, some pretty strong evidence for the fact that a lot of these fairy figures um, that arose, um, not only are they connected to the dead, but sometimes they're connected to the specific dead who were buried at a place and became sort of, you know, over the time, this you know this important chieftain or this important shaman or this important warrior um their identity sort of uh shifted over time into being a genus loci but a spirit of the place and that really does sort of point to this idea that yeah they are us and we are them and it's all part of this um this multi-phase process that we're in so that's that's where my head is at now mm-hmm. Throw in, you know, throw in there a, a healthy dose of, uh, you know, that content, that cultural context that we talk about, because I do think there is um, something at play where our expectations can form a lot of what we see. Um, Greg Bishop calls this the the co-creation model that he's been working on. Um, the idea that we bring certain expectations to these encounters, and that's that sort of end up filling in the blanks or you know defining the encounter itself. Oh sure, no, I mean I, I really just. You know, uh, well, I, I I agree with 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 all of that. You know, it's interesting too because I you know I've I've never really connected with with their work, but I, I find a lot of parallels in in thinking, uh, sort of with 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 where I've gone as well. And so I mean, I that's absolutely fascinating. And you know, just to remind everybody listening, you know, when uh, when when we talk about folklore and how because a lot of times, you know, obviously when people. Uh, use that term um, they it's it become sort of synonymous with um, well something that is widely considered to not be true uh, usually something that's older but th- but that doesn't have to be what it means of course folklore is alive and well today and it's literally just uh, uh, transferring knowledge through a, a traditional means rather than modern means and so we can see it happening in word of mouth and on the internet and everything else and so I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that but when you Oh, it sounds like you want to say something, so you you totally oh, should. You, yeah, you read my <laughs> mind. Um, no, yeah, everything you just said, um, it's a way of, you know, encoding um, a lot of lessons that we learn about the world. But I'm also a person who, I mean, you know, yes, I believe that people see very strange things, and a lot of these descriptions are probably dead on for what they saw. I, I totally believe that. Um, but I, nowadays... Um, and this is going to sound really kind of airy fairy to a lot of people, pardon the pun, fairy. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I don't draw as strong a distinction between between you know, the imaginary and the imaginal nowadays, if that makes any sense. So, mm-hmm. um, so you know, uh, the, the example that I always use is like you know, a, a, a film can be 
completely fictional about a love affair that's passionate and uh, grows and then ends up falling apart and you know, heartbreak. And it can be completely fictional, but it can also be the truest thing that's ever been put on the screen, you know, <laughs> in sure. terms of the way that it hits these story beats and whatnot. Um, so once you start wrapping your head around the, you know, that fact, the way that a lot of, you know, indigenous cultures don't really distinct, make a distinction between uh, fact and fiction because they sort of exist in this never, never land. Start thinking about the ways that Carl Jung would talk about, um, there being something between the physical and the, and the mental and, you know, again, it sound like really strange ideas, but if you're interested in ghost hunting, you know, that's exactly what we're talking about. Something that isn't physically there, but can still leave physical effects on the environment. Same thing with sci phenomena. And that's sort of where I, I think of a lot of these things at the same time is that there's something poetic about these archetypes, um, that even if they aren't, um, physical in the sort of the way that we can, you know, bag and tag a Bigfoot or that we can get a piece of a flying saucer, they still have a certain reality to themselves that is more than being imaginary, it's imaginal. Oh, sure. No, I, I, and I, I think that's uh, important, I think, to, to impress upon people. And, and I think that, uh, well, anybody listening to this certainly is going to be very open to those kinds of ideas. Because certainly, like, we, 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 we do talk about things like Psy and, and, uh, and um, you know, ghosts and, and, and things that uh, sort of have these uh, ephemeral natures. But yeah, no, you're right. Certainly do seem to have uh, some sort of, of tangible uh, effect recorded or at least experienced according to, to witnesses' testimony. You know, I'd like to, if we could circle back a little bit, because when you were talking about this um, ecology of souls, like certainly I, I think even in the Lake Michigan Mothman book I, I touched on it a little bit like I I do very much enjoy the idea of sort of this like ecology of, of consciousness or consciousness is really sort of e- existing alongside each other uh, uh, in in this you know like this shared space in in our reality and sort of what what that would look like because when you look at so much of the seemingly disparate phenomena from you know ghosts to UFOs to Bigfoot to whatever um, it, there does seem to be enough commonalities where you know I, I think that we do need to try to find um, you know some way to, to, to sort of make make sense of that. You know I, I don't think of it in terms of like trying to fit them all in the same box for convenience, but rather try to make sense of these things that seem to have more things in, in common than not. And so when you sort of think of the idea of all of these different you know souls, if you will, for lack of a better term, um, you know that all. I have... think that you're. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say. I, I was just gonna say. I completely agree with you. <laughs> um, yeah, I think you're spot on. I um, yeah, I I, I sometimes um, you know, I talk to some people who want to push back on, on, you know, it all being one thing, and, and I'm not sure that it is all one thing, but sure. I can say that these Venn diagrams, if if it's not a circle, these Venn diagrams overlap a lot, mm-hmm. and I, I think that. Uh, I really do think that your knowledge of UFOs is incomplete without looking at the Bigfoot stuff and the Bigfoot stuff is incomplete without looking at the ghost stuff because there is so much significant overlap. It's just, it, it, I feel like it's, impo- I feel like you, you end up being um, willfully 
ignorant to a de- to a degree if you're not like trying to synthesize the stuff or, or if you're the person who's saying oh, oh I, I like ufos but the bigfoot people are crazy or the ghost people are crazy you know <laughs> right. there, there are very few topics you know maybe flat earth or something <laughs> but there are very few topics where i'll completely throw out um where i'll completely throw out an entire you know line of thinking because i think that there's a lot to learn from all these different things and again even with like flat earth you still have a lot to learn about the way that people interact with uh you know authority figures and the way that people interact with science i think there's still something to be learned from it there too but um but yeah i mean but in terms of all these other 14 topics like we uh we're all living in glass houses you know absolutely oh definitely well the the way i like to try to explain it to people is you know um imagine well okay for instance wolves and bears right they're they're not the same animal but they're both mammals that live in a forest you know so they have certain things in common and and but they have this shared ecology too even if they don't interact with each other very very often like they they can occupy some of the the same spaces and so i think if you you look at at some of these uh you know paranormal entities so in that same light you know i i don't think that i would argue that um, something that somebody is perceiving as uh you know a, a traditional gray is the literal exact same thing as what somebody else is perceiving as some kind of hair humanoid or something but they do seem to operate um, you know in, in under some of the same uh constraints or or or, or you know uh using the same rules in a lot of ways um sort of in the same way that you would expect you know two two mammals to have certain things in common and so if you have this sort of like ecology of consciousness where there are these different types of beings that exist within it certainly some of the things they do are going to be the same but uh, that doesn't mean that they can't you know there can't be individual species almost with with within that i think yeah i mean i, I think that um i mean you know when we talk about commonalities a lot of the stuff that, again, I lean towards the the more the idea that we are dealing with a giant soup of, of very very much alike things. But like we could be talking about the mechanisms by which they manifest. We could be mm-hmm. talking about, like you said, the you know the environments. Um, you know, I personally don't think that uh, Bigfoot is an alien, but maybe that's what it is. You know, maybe that's <laughs> what it is. The the, th- the thing that I really want people to the the, the, the hills that I will die on. Besides the fact that psi phenomena is real, I'll die on that hill too. But the hills that I will die on are, you know, that you have to be, um, you have to, in good faith, engage with high strangeness in stories. And that you have to acknowledge a lot of these similarities. So those are the two, those are the two things where I'm like, you, if, if you don't do those, then I, I don't know, I don't know what to do with you. I don't know what to do with your lack of, of, inquisitiveness you know if that makes any sense sure no i get it so you know and i I feel like we've been talking a lot about you know this is like this and 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 high strangeness and everything else but you know i i think we probably for for some of our listeners we we really want to get some examples so um for just for for you it can be current research because obviously that's what is on you know that's in the forefront of all of our minds you know, who are investigators and researchers and stuff. It's always what we're working on now. So could 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 be anything at all. But um, what are some uh, examples of sort of what we're talking about that, that you would present to somebody and be like, look, this is 
some some commonalities that uh, that these things have, and uh, and and maybe you know this is this is what I think that means. Well, you know, one of the things that I you know one of the first things I started saying, uh, and this is I said this to Timothy, and he think he thought it was really smart. So I'm really <laughs> I'm really happy that he <laughs> hey, that, that kind of think of that. It means something. Um, but um, you know, the first thing that's most obvious to me is the company these things keep. You know, I mean, I always thought it was it was funny that. Alistair Crowley just so happened to buy a house, you know, next to a body of water that contains a, a relict pleosaur. I mean, come on. Right. <laughs> like, I really it's, appreciate it's, that, like, that you said Crowley and not Crowley, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it drives me up a wall when people pronounce it the wrong way. Agreed. Um, so kudos. Anyway. <laughs> I appreciate it. I'm in the club. Um, but, yeah, I mean, and I'm not saying that that doesn't mean that, you know – the um, definitive occult practitioner of the 20th century um, didn't buy a house that happens to be a preserve for dinosaurs, but <laughs> it seems to me like he was sort of keeping an eye on on it being a weird area, and it is a weird area, um, that, that part of the world. And, and you'll find the same thing um, with a lot of overlap between states that have Bigfoot and UFO sightings. And, you know, the... UFO and the Bigfoot people are like, oh, well, the UFOs are just studying the Bigfoot. And that's really – so there's it's, – it's this funny thing. you know. People think that Occam's razor means that the simplest explanation is the most likely to be true. But what was actually in, uh, encoded in, in Occam's razor, Occam being you know a monk, like he was somebody who definitely believed in the supernatural, was that you shouldn't multiply unnecessarily. You shouldn't multiply variables unnecessarily. So um, – you know, to a certain degree, saying that the, the aliens are studying the Bigfoot, it's just, it's 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 layers of multiple variables that we can't justify, including like for you know no other reason that these are craft. We're anthropomorphizing, you know, what what these aliens would want to do. We're assuming that Bigfoot's a, a flesh and blood creature. It seems a lot more sense to me to just say, well, you know, these things might be connected. Something Timothy says is that you know it's. It's rare to see a Bigfoot. It's rare to see a UFO. How many orders of magnitude is it rare to see them together? And is that a coincidence or not? You know, similarly, we don't have UFOs appearing, you know, above gorilla preserves in Rwanda, you know. <laughs> so why, why are they so interested in Bigfoot? Um, so it's that. Um, for me, it's the other things, you know, uh, a lot of these shared um, – these shared smells that you see uh, that's what the brimstone deceit was all about it sounds like a joel austin book or something but it's <laughs> it's it's really a, it's about all sorts of smells not just the, the smell of sulfur but you know there's a smell of sulfur that's a commonality in a lot of these different uh, stories but you know i think in terms of uh just because it's where my headspace has been lately um i think about uh these bigfoot encounters and like you know there's a, the case from uh, lafayette county pennsylvania which you know already right off the bat has the the Fayette factor built in, which Lauren Coleman talked about a lot as being places with the name Fay in them, uh, related fairies being places that tend to have high strangeness and or some you know some negative or more bloody um, uh, aspects to them. Um, but uh, you know, it's giant UFO lands on a farm in Pennsylvania. It's glowing bright red. Um, couple of young boys grab some rifles and they go up 
you know, to within a couple hundred yards of it. And they see walking along the fence line, silhouetted by the glow from this UFO, these tall, shaggy creatures that they shoot and the bullets pass right through them. And as they pass right through them, they shriek like babies. And one of them tries to grab or trace around. So one of them tries to grab the tracer around. And eventually they just pop out of existence. Um, for hours afterwards, after the UFO disappears, police say that it's bright enough in the area to read a newspaper by. And the owner of the farm, um, you know, ends up when, you know, uh, Stan Gordon was sent to the scene, ufologist and, you know, cryptozoologist as well. Um, He, you know, has an interaction with uh, one of the landowners there who ends up having a convulsive fit. And he has these visions of the apocalypse and this death Grim Reaper figure with some lasting effects afterwards. I believe his eyesight was changed and memory serves. Um, So that's, that's to me like... That's to me top shelf high strangeness, right? <laughs> um, and it really does sound like you're dealing with with dream logic, you know. It really does sound like you're dealing with the sort of things that you'd encounter after you know eating too much sharp cheddar cheese at eleven thirty p.m. Um, <laughs> sure. And uh, so, so you know, so I, I find those things fascinating because most researchers will, you know, they'll they'll either ignore them or they'll try to talk their way out of it, and. I have a real problem with that because if you take a witness who says, you know, the Bigfoot disappeared in front of my eyes, you'll say, well, maybe the Bigfoot ducked behind a tree or maybe it ducked into a ditch. But if you walk that line of thinking back consistently, you're going to end up with you saw a bear. Like that's where that sort of reductionism gets you Hmm. Um, as opposed to just trying to take people at their word and saying, well, you know, maybe maybe it vanished in front of your eyes maybe it maybe it did you know jump jump in behind a tree or into a ditch but you know i we've we've got to try to we've got to assume on some level that you're telling the truth and how do we fit that within our 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 framework oh Um, yeah no i mean one of the other other things oh yeah sorry oh no i I was well again which seems to be a recurring theme here i'm only interrupting you to agree with you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> say, yeah, no, I mean, that's that's exactly how I, I, I think witnesses should be treated. That's how I treat eyewitnesses. That's sort of my uh, my my witness philosophy or, or my approach, certainly, is uh, to to just act as though everything that they're saying is true unless I have real hard evidence to the contrary. And that's that's how everybody should be, I think. Well, and, you know, people like you are needed in the world. I, you know, one of the things that I... I'm a little bit ashamed of is that I don't have a lot of field experience. Hopefully, you know, it's going to change that before the pandemic shut everything down. Hopefully I can change that going into the future. I have some stuff lined up, but it was fascinating to me that the last place on earth where you can still get away with blaming the victim is in the paranormal. Because at the end of the day, if the person is being truthful and it really happened, it's trauma. If the person is being truthful and it's a mental problem, it's still trauma, <laughs> you know. Right. Um, but we're, but we're, but you know, it's fine to make fun of alien abductees, and it's fine to make fun of people who saw Bigfoot, and it's you know, laugh about them as being crazy. And I find that very telling about the way that we treat these topics. Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree. We were just down in Illinois shooting um, on the trail of the the Lake Michigan Mothman with uh, Small Town Monsters this past weekend. And, uh, you know, like that's something that that came up more than once. You know, there are sometimes people who will ask, you know, like, well, like, why aren't more people coming forward to other, you know, organizations or, you know, why are are people coming to you or, 
you know, uh, just sort of questioning the the flow of, of information. And I got to tell you, the most common uh, the most common excuse me narrative I hear from witnesses is that they will have this impossible experience. Right? It's it's powerful. It's impactful. And they want to tell somebody about it. And what they'll do is they go to a loved one, could be a spouse, a sibling, a close friend, whatever. And they tell this person that they trust more than anybody in the world because they feel like they'll be able to talk to them. And what usually happens is that person will laugh at them. And that is devastating. Mm. And they never talk about it again until they find somebody like me. And um, if you are an investigator in this field who feels like interrogating witnesses and treating them like criminals is a good way to advance, uh, you know, the, the, the body of knowledge, uh, I got to tell you, people aren't going to want to talk to you. And, and I don't blame them, you know. So if, you know, anybody wonders why people want to talk to, you know, people who approach the subjects like we do, um, it's because we're not jerks about it. You know, there's a human element here. These are human beings they're people and and they need help you know a, a lot of the time so you're absolutely right you know you know and, and i i i've had the occasion to talk to some people and i've talked to people that i think have had you know people have come to me at conferences and stuff and i treat the people who i believe and the people who i think are having mental issues because it's even very able to run into those people sure I, I, I try to treat them both the same way, and, and it it took me a while to realize this, but this is something that uh, you know my mentor Greg Bishop told me is that sometimes they just want to tell someone, and they mm-hmm. don't want to be laughed at, and they don't want advice, they don't want you to fix it, they just want you to listen. And uh, I think that anybody who's interested in getting into these subjects, I think that's really really good advice, um, just to be there, just to be a an ear to listen. Yeah, I I would completely agree. I I think that's a wonderful way to approach interviewing people you know like i said i mean one of the things that i have heard especially in recent years um and why uh the mutual ufo network has had so much difficulty uh in uh in in tracking down so many different types of sightings that are happening with, with within the areas in which they operate is that um, from my observation it's sort of become industry standard for them to interrogate people rather than interview them. <laughs> and who's going to want to talk to somebody like that, you know? Um, if, if you're being treated like a, a liar, like right out of the gate, yeah, no, no, no thank you. Like it's, it's no worse, or I'm sorry, it's no better rather than um, what they probably experienced in the first place, which is what I've already described, which is, you know, trying to tell somebody close to them and being laughed at or, or something. And then, you know, to be treated that way by somebody that you go to for help after that i mean it's on some level not to you know not to be melodramatic but it's it's sort of unconscionable really well and and so this is you know controversial opinion incoming um but um sometimes i wonder if ufo organizations trying to do science is not barking up the wrong tree Um, (laughs) because number one i don't think they're not going to do any science that's going to be accepted by the mainstream. And, uh, um, I also think, you know, there's a Steve Martin quote that says, um, writing about music is like dancing about architecture. And, uh, <laughs> I sometimes think that like trying to, we, we've had 70 years of, 
barely moving the needle on the UFO question approach from a scientific standpoint. And I, sometimes I wonder if not taking a look at it from the psychosocial standpoint or, you know, you know, dare I say even sort of a spiritual standpoint isn't sort of the way to go. I, I kind of wonder if the reason that we haven't seen any progress with some of these tools is because you automatically reach a point where these tools fall short of trying to describe what whatever this thing is now of course who knows maybe in you know the next 10 days when we all get disclosure i'll be eating a bunch of crow but i <laughs> i suspect i suspect that's not the case you know right yeah that while well, that oh boy yeah that opens a whole another uh just pandora's box because i feel like i'm taking crazy pills over here all the time uh, watching the the endless disclosure where literally there's a, a large swath of the UFO community who appears to have forgotten about, like, Richard Doty and the OSI, for instance. Uh, the stated, like, motives of every government UFO project ever to date, which was always to debunk UFOs rather than actually study them. And, you know, to sort of suddenly believe like to just be expected to credulously believe a government narrative about ufos all of a sudden because a 90s pop punk star told me to i just i can't i just can't do it well you know i i, I have to say that i agree with absolutely all of what you said um you know i don't want to turn this into a a whinge fest, but um, <laughs> there is a level of there is a level of, of naivete among the people who are really supporting this um, this movement. Uh, uh, to say nothing of the fact that you know, uh, I mean, there are only a handful of reasons why the military industrial complex investigates and talks openly about things, and they have to do with gaining power keeping power or fending off threats to power like that's mm. the reason that <laughs> that's the reason that they've studied anything right um and uh and the idea that we suddenly would have some sort of transparency out of the good of their heart or something or because it's time you know it's these people who i think grotesquely say you know um ufos are a human rights issue um you see that on <laughs> ufo twitter sometimes um yeah. I, I i i don't think that's what we're seeing at all like i think you've got to frame this within the context of a second cold war i think that you've got to frame this within the context of you know the space force being announced which you know it was a it was a it was a silly sounding thing coming from an obnoxious person but it's still an idea that probably should have happened a couple of decades ago um, setting up a space force and you know i kind of wonder if all this ufo stuff that we might be ready to see isn't just you know a pledge drive um for for this or at least you know to drum up uh support or you know some people will push back and say well you know they have all, all these black budgets at their disposal they don't need to fundraise okay fine then maybe this is a way of crowdsourcing more eyes in the sky um to to look up and to report things and to report foreign drones i don't know but what i do know is that um official narratives always have an aspect where you have to ask qui bono who you know who benefits hmm. Oh, sure. No, I mean, that's very, very well said. I mean, it, again, like Richard Doty uh, operating under the purview of the uh, uh, Office of Special Intelligence for the, the Air Force literally drove 
Paul Benowitz mad. Like he was mentally ill yeah. as a result of the the lies and manipulations uh, uh, perpetrated upon him as part of this this government cover up for the crime, you know, quote unquote crime of accidentally overhearing some stuff from an Air Force base that he wasn't supposed to hear through like his ham radio. So if they would do that to a private citizen to cover up something like that, what do you think they would do to the UFO community to cover up, uh, you know, somebody uh, leaking, you know, foreign drone incursions or something that they or their own special projects that, that they don't want anybody to know about right now? No, a hundred percent, and uh, I think again it speaks to sort of the the amount of you know it's it. I got a lot of crap when I was on Twitter for saying things like you know you haven't read Keel, you haven't read Young, you haven't you know read about the basics of UFO history. But at the same time, you know, yeah, that that's that's hundred percent true. You know, <laughs> yes, yeah, you've got to know these things and what's what's been done in the past, and it really does start to sound like you know an abused spouse who who is believing you know oh this time you were telling me the truth this time you're going to do right by me and it's just like now you've, you've got to walk away at some point because i mean that's really what disclosure is right i had a, had a conversation with uh, with louis streber about this it's like this whatever this is it's not going to be disclosure that's not where disclosure happens i mean just to make it sound kind of cheesy disclosure happens in your heart i mean <laughs> you know the the paranormal is an intensely personal thing time and again i think the record bears that out um, maybe not in every instance, but in a lot of these, they, these are these are bedrock fundamental human experiences, and I do think that there is something that is very personal and very human about them. And so, you know, if, if if you're living your life hoping to discover the truth of whether or not aliens exist or this or that or the other, I think you're doing it wrong. I think you've I think you've got to make peace with the fact that you might never know what amount of evidence do you need yourself to be able to say, okay, it seems to me like these things are actually do have some sort of basis in reality. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Uh, well, and, and you mentioned this before too, you know, when, when you're thinking about these uh, subjects, you know, um, you really do have to consider if, if, you know, hard scientific proof is really what you're after, are you, are, are you just running yourself ragged i mean is this this some like sisyphean task that can never be done because we don't have the tools necessary to 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 detect or measure this stuff in any way that would ever be meaningful to mainstream science so at a certain point like why like why even bother well there's there's a quote i think it's from you know the habits of successful people or whatever that you know, self-help book that came back in the 80s or whatever. And, um, you know, it said so many times people are striving towards success only to get to get to the top and find that the ladder has been propped up against the wrong wall. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I feel like we have been overdue for a real paradigm change in terms of the way that we interpret reality. And if you've been, if you've been kind of paying attention, you can see it sort of creeping around the margins that um, physics is getting weirder. Um, materialism is... Is, is loosening its grip on things and really if there's any chance that materialism isn't um isn't uh, the actual reality of what's happening with this then it really does blow open everything and it's not to put too fine of a point on it but uh the thing the argument that i always use is um you know do you accept the reality of 
of telepathy and UFO accounts? Well, I mean, you, you kind of have to, even if you're not an alien abduction person, there's plenty of telepathy in sites involving lights in the sky. Richard Dolan talked about this. Mm-hmm. So, okay, uh, so uh, telepathy exists in UFO accounts, but what do we do with that? Well, if telepathy exists in UFO accounts, it means that materialism is falsified. You know, I've had some people push back on me with this, be like, oh no, there's still room for telepathy and psi effects in a materialist universe. It, I have about a dozen different quotes from science, philo- science philosophers who say that no, it really does mean that like something fundamental about the way that we understand reality is, is broken if, if telepathy does exist. Mm-hmm. And that would, at that point, like, holy cow, these <laughs> things could be anything, you know? Right. <laughs> like aliens could be literally anything at that point. They could be, uh, you know, our future selves. They could be the ghosts of aliens. They could be the human dead. They could be, I mean, freaking fairies, right? Oh, sure. Um, so, I mean, that's that's sort of where you wind up if, if you follow that to its logical conclusion. Uh, and that doesn't mean, you know, again, that doesn't mean that we have to throw out everything that we've learned from uh, materialism and from the, you know, those, those great scientific advances. But at the same right. time, if I introduce the color green to a black and white film, it's no longer a black and white film. You know, it does oh, change the entire vibe of the thing. Yeah, I mean, like, so, can, continue going to your doctor and, you know, can continue trying Western medicine when you get sick. But, you know, I, I think you, you make a good point there when you talk about, you know, what, what that would mean in terms of what UFOs are. But, you know, uh, beyond that, and maybe this is why we, you know, we, we, we tend to get so much pushback when it comes to these subjects, is what would it say about what we are? You know, if if that materialist yes. paradigm is is shattered and something like telepathy exists, and we have to start thinking about consciousness in terms of, say, consciousness is a, a universal force like gravity that exists outside of the human body. You know, th- you know, just all of those myriad possibilities. Um, you know, I think that's not something that necessarily people are ready or willing to confront. You hit on an amazing point, and this is something that I've been playing with for a while, which is, um, and this is exactly what you just said, um, I think that there probably is some degree of, of information that the government is withholding, but I don't think it's because it's, you know, we're not alone in the universe, because that concept, oh, you know, we're not alone in the universe, pales in comparison to how topsy-turvy your world would be if you found out that there was some sort of non-material dimension to reality. I mean, which is which is which is more upsetting to your day-to-day life? Which which perturbs normalcy more? That reality looks like close encounters of, of the third kind, or that reality looks like the Iliad? I mean, <laughs> come on, you know. Um, and, so, and you know, to say nothing of the fact that uh, you know the implication of that is that your consciousness, um, some aspect of you, is immortal. At which point, you know, death is not the ultimate threat of force that governing bodies can use against you. You know, violence or death means nothing if that's the actual truth. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of wonder if that's not what we're seeing, if that's not the big cover-up, because that that would be such a disruption, such a greater disruption, I think, to the status quo than, oh, yeah, we got green scientists coming down who like to stick stuff up your butt. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, I mean, I, 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 absolutely. And there's no... And, you know, if you are an imaginative sort of person, there's really no end to just like the disturbing possibilities, you know, like, yeah, what if 
you know, we were sort of uh, like, let's say just for the sake of, of speculation that like, you know, we were put on this planet as stock for, you know, beings that farm our souls at death or something, right? Just like something dark and terrible, you know, how would people respond right. to that? <laughs> Not well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, that'll be an interesting idea for, for a work of fiction, right? Like there's, there's an X-Files, but its job is to keep secret the fact that, uh, we're really living in a Lovecrafty universe. Like, <laughs> right. to keep, it's like putting a positive spin on trying to keep everyone from going insane by staring into the void, you know? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Now, now, just for, for the record, I don't think that's the case or anything. It's just, you know, I, I think that there's a real possibility that, um, you know, if if we do in our lifetimes really uh, discern uh, any level of the, the actual truth behind this, um, I think it's going to force us to ask some very uncomfortable questions. And, and I suspect that they'll probably be uh, much more related to issues of identity. You know, for instance, like you talk about the, the possibility that uh, what what we're seeing in in some of the more you know alien encounters could be uh, you know the 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 spirits of of our own dead and you know which makes a certain amount of uh, sense to me because why shouldn't a, 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 a surviving consciousness be able to look like whatever the hell it wants right so in that case you know and of course I, as I'm sure you know you're very well uh, aware and have already mentioned you know people have been talking about this sort of thing for centuries with the idea that like fairies or the, the, the spirits of, of the dead. And so, you know, if somebody could, uh, after they die, become, uh, you know, an alien gray or mothman or a, a fairy or whatever, you know, what does that, what does that say? What does that force us to confront about issues of identity, humanity? I mean, it's, uh, it opens a lot of, uh, of doors that I don't think people necessarily want to go through. Well, yeah, it's, it it brings you to a point. I mean, it's it really is kind of part of the reason that I think that it, that might be sort of the case is because it does contain that kernel of self negation. You know, this is sort of George Hanson's the trickster in the paranormal territory, right? The idea that these topics are deliberately seedy. The idea that the people who follow them are deliberately fallible, visibly fallible. You know, the idea that there is a very fine separating line between guru and con man is because there's something about this trickster archetype that's embedded into this. And I, I think that, uh, you know, by merit of having a conversation like this, we kind of discredit ourselves you and i because it's so <laughs> bonkers and so far afield and quite frankly so unscientific and i'm not anti i'm not anti-science i'm anti-scientism that's a different thing mm. um but uh but i yeah i mean it's it's something that i think is worth considering um you know i don't at the same time i still think that saying oh it's you know it's all the dead even though that's what i'm writing about right now is still sort of it's sort of sort of tidy and reductive. Like this is there's something about this that is so much stranger than I think that we are able to articulate. Sure. Uh, um, I mean, uh, why couldn't it be more more complicated? Of course, it. You know, um, you know. For instance, like, what if um, you know we sort of are part of this ecology of souls? You know, this this larger like consciousness, right? that's populated by, you know, things that maybe have always been consciousness. And then maybe, 
you know, there's there's some sort of uh, transference or something, you know, post-mortem, uh, wherein we sort of like return full-time or, or in a, a much more, um, boy, uh, meaningful sense, I guess, back into that ecology from where we are now. You know, I mean, there, there could be so many layers to this. Well, that's the thing is, you know, I, I feel like I've tried to do this with some of my writing is to push myself into areas where I feel uncomfortable. Like, mm-hmm. right. So, I mean, for Thieves in the Night, it was like, do you really think that there are hybrid aliens walking around us, Josh? You know, and I'm like, well, well, I don't. But like, how can I reconcile that in an intellectually honest way that's looking at this, you know, sensitively? And that's sort of part of what that book was about for me. And so, so what I'm working on right now is like, all the all the woo abduction stuff you know i mean even even among people like me who are more inclined to these you know symbolic and psychosocial ideas like the idea of someone talking to a gray alien before they're incarnated on earth like i have no idea what to do with that so i'm trying (laughs) to challenge myself in that way but that's also my go-to you know if if what happens this month with this you know forthcoming report literally comes out and says you know we are being visited by you know, um, you know, space pilot Bibble from the planet Zebel Ganubi. Um, even if they say that, I'm going to be like, okay, nice. Uh, what do we make of dead people who show up in alien abductions? You know, right. what do we make of what do we make of uh, the fact that you know alien abductees have these profound synchronicities stretching into their future and resonating with their past? Like, what do we? Okay, cool, little green scientists. What does that have to do with this? Um, and I, I don't, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. There could be still a materialist example uh, uh, answer for that, I guess. But it, to me, it implies something again stranger. I feel sure. like if they came out and said that, my my response and the only like honest response any of us could have would have to be what? And you just believed them? I mean, honestly, yeah, you yeah. know, like oh, he told you he was this, but well, okay. Well, you know, I, I had a I had a um, a conversation with the Where the Road Go Cats about this, and um, it was the, sort of the, the part of what we landed on was that, in some ways, the most irrefutable um, evidence would probably be the most hard, the the hardest rejected, right? <laughs> I mean, you, we can't get the people of America to agree on masks or viruses, you know. I mean, why are why do you think we're going to make them agree on aliens, you know? Well, I'm just saying, um, if, if 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 an alien came down and told me something. You know, after all oh, yeah. of the, the years and years of, of uh, uh, you know, re-recorded abductions and things, um, you know, wherein, you know, like, where, where we're talking about sort of terrible things happening to people. I know there are different camps and and uh, and some people think that that it's all benevolent. And, you know, I sort of, uh, uh, I sort of land on the side of, well, I guess the intention doesn't really matter because the effect isn't generally very great. And so if something like that, that so clearly is willing um, to manipulate people for its own ends, came down and was like, hey, you know, this is where we're from. This is what we are. This is what we want. I don't know that I would trust that, you know. Well, you know, that's that's an excellent point. And it brings to mind, you know, I mean, we have the, the abduction literature. Well, searching back to the contactee literature is conflicting in terms of you know what these things talk about and it's littered with false prophecies or prophecies that don't come true i guess (laughs) um 
But you know what that really resonates with me is the fact that it was something that uh, you know Emanuel Swedenborg said. He said, you know, the spirits are very unreliable narrators, <laughs> and that was something that you would run into with a lot of spiritualists in their seances as well. As I would say, well, you know, you have to take some of this stuff with a grain of salt, and that's what you see again, time and again. They say, oh, we're from here, or you know, oh, you know, oh, the world's going to end in you know three months, or you know, all these different things that just they're they're they're, they're screwing with us, you know, <laughs> right. Well, yeah, that's, that's or at least it that's, feels that way. Yeah, right. No, I mean you're you're absolutely correct. I mean there is so much conflicting information, uh, you know, sort of given through uh, uh, witness testimony, as you know, as uh, reportedly told to them by whatever the hell it is that we're dealing with. Although speaking of unreliable narrators, now you mentioned John Keel earlier, and you know I I grew up yeah. reading Keel, and I, I was a, a big fan. I still enjoy reading him. He's very he was a very, very entertaining uh, writer and, um, you know, excellent storyteller. But I always tell people, you know, like, yeah, you can take him seriously, but like, you know, as seriously as you take your drunk uncle, because when, <laughs> it's, it's true, because he loved uh, he loved a good story and he never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And so I think, and I, I'd like to hear your opinion on this, but I, I think that unfortunately, sort of what we're seeing right now is this kind of uh, deification of Keel. You know, obviously he passed away some time ago, um, and I think people are very much viewing his work through rose-colored glasses at, at this point. And so you've got people willing to sort of just take him on his word and take everything verbatim. Um, when in fact it is very much arguable, um, and so um, yeah, I guess I just thoughts on, on on that because I see it so much in the community with the cert, like the like like the the current sort of rise in high strangeness and the popularity of high strangeness. People are looking for gurus, you know. They're they're looking for for people who know what like what it all is and can and can provide them with the, this information. And, uh, and so they find Keel and they're like, oh, well, this is great. I'm just going to believe all of it and take it all at face value. And uh, I feel like that's a mistake. Yeah, I, I think that there's something to be said for that. Um, you know, the way that I've my relationship with Keel has changed is I almost look at him like gonzo paranormal journalism. Right. So um, uh <laughs> And, and this is gonna this is gonna get probably land me in on the hot seat with some people, but it's almost <laughs> like I think of him as truthy rather than truthful. Mm. <laughs> um, and yeah, you have to take with a, with a pretty heaping grain of salt a lot of what he says. At the same time, I have yet to find something that didn't encode some aspect of truth. I know that sounds really weird and vague, but. Um, uh, I guess what I mean by that is, is that uh, the stuff that he says is has an internal logic and internal consistency, and it's like, you know, I was on this other podcast and it was with two people who were skeptics, but they were really cool skeptics because they were able to say that even if these topics are completely. Uh, bunk like top to bottom everything soup to nuts is just made up silliness it's still important and fascinating because of what it says about the human condition now that's where i that's where i have 
wound up with my relationship with Keel. So if somebody were to come to me and say, John Keel said this, you know, event happened. Again, the ideas are, the ideas, I have no problem with citing the ideas because the ideas, his ideas sort of exist separately from his accounting, recounting of events. But um, if somebody comes to me and says, Keel said this happened, and I say, well, you know, you have to take that with a grain of salt. But at the same time, um, with the way that I look at these things, having their sort of internal motivic consistency and sort of what they say about the way that we think about the paranormal and the way that we think about these things, I personally don't have a problem with because most of my stuff is swimming in this soup of archetypes and, um, you know, symbolism. And that's the sort of thing that really makes me fascinated. So it's almost as if he's playing a role in forming that symbolism himself as well. And that sounds like a lot of weasel words to say that the guy wasn't, wasn't 100% truthful. <laughs> but that's sort of the way that I've reconciled. I've reconciled it with it in, in my sort of worldview and in my work. But I 100% could see why people have problems with him, you know, reporting stuff uh, not not 100% factually. Um, I think you also sort of need to nest it inside the context of the time that he was writing too. Um, it's you know it's it's a hard sell today for some of these ideas. And I can only imagine what a harder sell it was with some of those ideas back then without um, you know, trying to, to make them into some sort of readable narrative. You know, and that's, mm-hmm. that's one of the things that I always find really interesting about Whitley is that, uh, you know, the guy had written a lot of books that made a lot of sense before he wrote Communion, which makes no damn sense. You know? <laughs> it's like the guy, could have, the guy had, the, had it within him to write a really tidy, you know, narrative, but he didn't. Right. Um, so yeah, that's sort of, is that, is that a halfway answer or does it sound like, to be honest, does it sound like I'm sort of weaseling my way out of it or? No, I think, well, I, I think that you are certainly like explaining your, your, your point of view well. And, and, and I, I understand it, you know, um, probably, well, I don't know, maybe more than some people, probably less than even more people, but just sort of because, you know, as a writer and somebody you know who who went to school for this yeah i mean i i i understand especially what you're talking about when you say you know that he had to sort of craft this this narrative to be able to to even share any of the of these ideas in the first place because you know when you and i I talk about that a lot with people, um, you know, anybody who's willing to discuss John Keel with me, uh, which is less people than, than you might think. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, looking at the Mothman prophecies, for instance, you know, and this is something which unfortunately has had a, a real effect, you know. Um, but uh, you, you, you look at this work that he wrote years after the fact, um, and, and you look at his 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 storytelling and his need for a narrative ending because i think he knew enough about telling a good story to understand that he needed an ending for this book and you know you had the silver yeah, the yeah. silver bridge collapse and i'm sorry in my opinion it couldn't be less related it has nothing to do with anything in terms of the any high strangeness happening in that area and in fact you know if anybody who was present there at the time you know people from point pleasant will tell you nobody was no nobody thought that was the case when it happened you know like it, it right. literally was invented by him for his book i believe because he needed a good ending for his book because otherwise you're left with what the rest of us are usually left with which is there is no ending because none of this ever ends ever and i don't know what it was 
you know, which would right. have been the honest ending. The best. Yeah. yeah, but it's not what, what, what we got. And so now you have, unfortunately, people who have decided that they know what the entity is because of the narrative that he crafted. Um, you know, and you get this like harbinger of doom angle and everything, and there's really nothing to it. I mean, if you really wanted to to, to get down to, to brass tacks, I would challenge anybody to point to any anything at all, like anything like evidential to show some sort of connection. Um, but it just doesn't exist. And, and But it's persisted yet, you know. Yeah. I think that's. I mean, I think that's evidenced in the fact that people keep on trying to retrofit Mothman onto tragedies, or you know, look for tragedies every time Mothman pops up. It's like, no, no, it's not. That's not the way this works. <laughs> um, you know, I, I do think that. So two things. Um, some of the stuff that I'm working with. This is this is, this is what's so hard for me to articulate. Um, it comes back to the idea that if these phenomena are behave part of the way that I think that they, they do, then people like Keel and Valet, by writing these narratives, I talked with uh, Barbara Fisher of Six Degrees of John Keel about this, by writing these narratives, they are playing into the way that these meta-narratives will play out in the future, right? So they're setting up expectations which are then fed upon by whatever these things are, right? So who knows if, and again, as you well put, probably no probably not no connection but who knows if there was a connection between mothman and silverbridge but it retro there retroactively becomes a connection on a mythopoetic level between mothman and disasters now that's not literal cause and effect and i totally get that but I, but, but i guess what i'm saying is that i think that these these things do have a, a meta component that uh self-reinforces when something like that gets that much cultural cachet i think that the way that we i think that expectations i think that ex- expectations and perceptions kind of are reality in a sense when dealing with some of these things and if the expectations shift in that way then maybe that's sort of the role that that uh, that keel played mm-hmm. you know uh, again it's, it sounds like i'm making excuses and i'm totally getting what you're saying i guess what i'm saying is that i think that if we are seeing sort of new myth making um then it lives in this sort of in-between space. That sounds stupid when I say it like that. But, <laughs> no, I mean, I, <laughs> but, I, mean, I get it. Yeah. I don't know. I, um, I, I think that's giving him a lot of credit, honestly. I really do. Yeah. Um, when I, I think probably, you know, it's probably somewhere in the, 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 the middle. But I, I think more he, was, he just told a good story, frankly. Um, and then, you know, and, and smart people can apply whatever meaning they want to it after, after the fact. And they will, because that's what smart people do. They find meaning in, in everything. Um, but, uh, you know, um, some, some, sometimes, you know, like your Uncle John has three or four drinks at Christmas and he's just going to tell you a story. You know, that's that's yeah, that's that's yeah. that's where I come down on on a lot of it. And that's for anybody listening no, like that's not taking away from his obvious contributions. I love a lot of the theory crafting and and stuff that he did in terms of like the ultra terrestrials. I don't necessarily agree with all of it, but I think it really got the conversation started um, at a, a, you know, decades ago at a time when 
when it, people weren't really talking about it, when people were really very much still in the nuts and bolts sort of, you know, uh, paradigm for, for uh, ufology. So he did a lot of good I, I, stuff. So this is going to make me sound like a horrible researcher or a horrible author, but I guess I, I'm different than a lot of people because I just – I only half believe any of the stuff that's presented to me as fact in these in these topics like i just i just i i I never really fully commit to believing or not believing something unless it's like you know something wildly crazy like some of this david ike stuff you know like that that stuff i'll commit to being you know to being absolute lunacy but like Mm -hmm. some even some of these high strange stories i don't for me I, i don't ever say well that must have happened because this person said it and i don't say um you know well, that didn't happen because it's too crazy. I, I, I just I live in this middle ground a lot of times with a lot of stuff that I look at, and I think that's probably what I'm tr- what I'm trying to get across about Keel. Oh, sure. Um, is that you know I I don't because he, here's the thing you know a lot of the because I'm always looking at these trends and stuff. It's more about the the picture and aggregate that you see rather than you know any really even any one case. If there's not you know three different cases that are sort of you know, pointing towards the same motif, then I really don't care as much. You know, <laughs> um, sure. But yeah, it's it's it's. I think that a lot of people, and we see this with with um, you know, we see this with a lot of things nowadays. Is that nobody really has room for their interesting if true basket? You know, and I that basket is the biggest basket in my head. Um, you know, the gray basket. Yeah. No. I. I, I mean. I. I tend to agree with that. I mean. Really, and I, I, I say this a lot, um, but it's true. I mean, my approach is to uh, essentially, you know, operate under the assumption that what a witness is telling me is true, or at least could be true, um, unless I have, you know, hard evidence to the, the, the contrary, you know. And so I think that's important. You know, it, it really is. You don't want mm-hmm. to be too credulous or or incredulous you know i mean there is a real threat of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and and we have to avoid that we talked about it with mufon you know a lot of people organizations are so far up the butt of mainstream science you know for lack of a better uh term that um they they miss out on a lot they you know yeah. by just dismissing things and, and you can't of course yeah, I mean, to say nothing of the, the broader problems with the organization, too. Um, the, some of the ethical issues there. Oh, of course. Um, but again, that's again, that's, that's the Hanson thing, right? It's the idea that it's always going to be, the, you know, the seediness is baked into these topics. Um, it's They've existed on the fringe for so long that, um, you know, in terms of the community, how could there not be some, frankly? You know, like you push things to the margins and uh, that happens, unfortunately. It it attracts a certain type of person. It's like the mafia and the restaurant business, right? I mean, it's it's never (laughs) going to, you know, the mafia is always going to be involved in the restaurant business because it's just, it's a good place to hide. You know, it's a good place (laughs) to, to, yeah. It's it's a great way to launder money. Or, or, you know, in the case of paranormal, laundering ideas. Yeah. You see it all the time. Well, absolutely. I mean, which... Honestly, I would love to talk about, but I, boy, that would be a whole different podcast, you know, in terms of discussing, uh, well, just, uh, you know, subtle and not so subtle, like Nazi ideology that has been incorporated, um, you know, issues of race and identity and uh, marginalized peoples and all of this other stuff, which is super fascinating and everybody should be interested in it. 
But um, yeah, it's a whole, it is a whole nother thing to, to, to get into. But we definitely should uh, some other time. It does remind me of, um, and I can't remember the name of the website. And even if I could, I wouldn't say it because I don't want anybody to go there. But um, <laughs> I was, it's true. I was doing a little bit of, uh, well, I, a little bit. I was doing some, some research for uh, the, the book I'm working on. Uh, because I had a witness basically who talked about seeing this flying humanoid, but the flying humanoid he had seen uh, wasn't you know your traditional winged being. It was on like this this sort of scooter thing, this hover scooter or something, and uh, he related it to this um, this I believe it was Mexico this uh, this Mexico City sighting of a, a flying humanoid that was on caught on video. Mm. And there's only one source for this video, and it's this website. And if, if, which I did in, as I was trying to, you know, locate the, the, the source and make sure it was the definitive source and that's where it came from and everything else, I happened to go ahead and click to, to this website's homepage, which, which was a mistake or maybe not because now I get to, I, I, I got to warn people about it uh, in the, the, the book, but literally like the homepage of this website is selling and this is not an exaggeration. This is not like, you know, leftist pearl clutching, like literally selling books on like why the Nazis were right. And like, I was like, are you serious? Because so many people would just go probably and read this one article, which you wouldn't have known any of that from this article. It literally was just a relatively straightforward accounting of this this particular witness's uh, experience with this thing. It had a, like the video in it, you know, whatever. It was fairly normal uh, in, in, in that regard. But it, it makes you wonder, you know, if that is the the kind of people behind this organization, you know, like how are they how in what way are they able to present these sort of untoward ideas um, in, in in a way that, that makes them seem innocuous? You know, like certainly it's it's an issue in the in this field, um, and uh, just encountering it in the wild like that, it was. Uh, it was something else. I gotta tell you, it it, it, it caught me off guard. So it's uh, yeah, it, you it's just a want to scrub your hard drive, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's like no one must ever know I accidentally went to here. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's always been this, you know, there's always been this uh, brand of ufologist who's just always a little bit too interested in the Nazi bell, you know. Oh yeah. Um, and and uh, you know, to be clear, I think that there are plenty of people who have a genuine interest who aren't like that. I think that there are plenty of people who uh, are behaving in ways that just don't look good. Having said that, mm-hmm. it's definitely a, it's definitely a through line in, in all these topics. And, um, you know, I, uh, I kind of wonder if part of the reason that it isn't tolerated is because, I mean, even if you talk about just NASA, you end up talking about Nazis a lot sure. because of all the paperclip stuff. And so there's always been this, you know, there's always been this through line of um, of people feeling like they have to talk about Nazis when they talk about UFOs. And I think, you know, I think there's some earnest people who uh, get carried away with that. And I think that there's some people who are uh, gener- like genuinely bad actors who are lurking in the in the um lurking in the shadows and who are indeed using a lot of this to push itself forward i mean i think it's just a almost a matter of public record at this point 
Oh, definitely. You know, and 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 like I said, I, I almost regret telling that story because it's like we don't have time to get into you know all of it right now. So we'll definitely have to have you back, and we can we can actually talk about it, you know, uh, uh, at length, which is really what it what it deserves. But um, yeah. boy, yeah. For now, why don't we? Uh, why don't we let everybody know one where they can find your books? I think uh, the yeah. Oh, uh, go ahead. I was just saying. I, I, I think that's, that's important because like we are we are sort of actually over time, but you know I feel like we could probably just talk for hours and hours and hours, and uh, oh, yeah. and that would be great. But we should try to do it in uh, in small segments, and then we can record them and release them as this as you know part of our podcast. Yeah, I um I think that's just a function of us not having caught up in a while, and yeah. just the, the, it's a great conversation as well. So oh, for sure. Um, you can find uh, everything about me at joshuacutchin.com, J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N.com. I'll link to all my interviews up there, and um, uh, yeah, there are some uh, links to all my books. Um, they're available from different booksellers. Unfortunately, the two Bigfoot books are only available from Amazon because that's how we got them uh, printed up. But uh, sure. if you can't ask your brick and mortar bookseller, uh, all about supporting them for sure. And if you want to reach out to me directly through the website, uh, I can send uh, copy uh, signed copies of anything as well. Oh, excellent! Yeah, that's that's always a huge bonus for for me personally. I always like a signed copy. If if I can yeah, get I one. always forget to tell people that. <laughs> so I'm just sitting here with a pile of books, and I just I forget to tell people. Yeah. Oh, dude. No, I, I know exactly how that goes. I usually forget half of the stuff we have going on anytime I make any kind of appearance and somebody asks me about it. Speaking of, now that things are kind of opening back up again, um, can people see you anywhere in 2021? Well, if, if it's the last minute, but if, if, you, if you can make it out this weekend to uh, Con Carolinas in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, I'll be doing some panels there. Uh the next thing that's happening is I will be at the Strange Realities Conference that's going to be happening in Nashville this October. Um, I should have the dates of those at hand, but I don't. Uh, hold on. Strange Realities 2021 um, <laughs> is going to be... Uh, come on, Josh. You can do it. I believe in you. Um, Strange Realities 2021 is going to be October 15th through 17th. And it's going to be uh, some people in person, some people uh, Skyping in for different talks. But uh, I will be one of the in-person people there. Don't awesome. know what I'm talking on yet, but that will be happening then in Nashville. Okay, super exciting. Uh, yeah, I've heard good things about that one. So definitely anybody who's capable of checking that out absolutely should. Um, and, yeah, that's uh, that's fantastic. So. All right. So, uh, you know, Emily actually had to end up sitting out, sitting this one out. So while she normally would partake in, in the outro, uh, it's just going to be me. Uh, so there's no final questions for, from Emily this time. Sorry, everybody. Um, but, uh, you know, needs must as the devil drives. Right. So um, I guess that's it for us here at the Singular Fortean Society. Thank you very much, uh, Joshua Kutchen. Always a pleasure. Always, always, always a lot of fun to talk to you. And uh, until next time, keep it weird. We would like to give a special thanks to Andrew Frisk and Dylan Burnett for their help in producing these episodes. 